First Peter chapter 5, and for context, let's begin in verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And verses 10 through 12 is what we're going to focus on. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Salvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Let's pray together. Father, what a great subject we get to look at today. We know, Lord, that we're not going to even come close to broaching all the content in your word related to that great theme. But we pray, Father, as we look at these different verses, God, that you would help break through our incapacity to be able to see how vast and deep and how wide your love and your grace is toward us and the implications of that truth. We pray for your Holy Spirit that he would do a work in our lives today through your word. We pray, Lord, that those that are here that may not know you, they would come to know you, Lord, by the end of this time. We just thank you for how amazing you are. We thank you, Lord, that even though this world appears to be careening out of control, that you're in complete control. That your, your heavenly throne is sovereign over all that we see. Thank you, Lord, that you make sense of all of it in your word. We thank you that we're not rudderless, that we have direction from you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take advantage of this time, redeeming the time for your eternal purposes. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you're visiting with us, you're new to the Bible, or if you've been here a long time and you're new to the Bible, there's no shame in looking at the table of contents. No shame at all, no condemnation. Feel free, go there and figure out where, to, where we're going and all of that as we look at different passages. Normally, we're, we mainly stay in one passage, but when we're talking about the topical themes that we're looking at, related to the Calvary Chapel distinct is we're jumping around a little bit more than usual. So you can get used to in the next week or two, who knows how much longer this will go, but be ready to at any time to jump to other passages. Um, and there's no shame in looking at the table of contents. Uh, we're looking at, as I said, these, these distinctives. We've looked at the importance of calling, that calling is everything, that God doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the called. And everything overflows from our calling that we have. All of us are are called, those of us that know him, are called to serve him and to serve his people in some capacity. And calling is the basis from which all of our ministries flow or or depend on. Secondly, we looked at it's Jesus' church, let him build it. That he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. 
That he hasn't called us to build the church. He's called us to build up the church, but he hasn't called us to grow our numbers. There's pastors that are crushed under the weight of that pressure. And I'm thankful that I have been trained as much as I've strayed from that in my mind at times, uh, been trained to focus on feeding and tending instead of growing numbers. He never told Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, if you love me, multiply my sheep. He said, if you love me, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, and, and so forth. So as we obey the Great Commission and we go out and preach the Gospel out there, souls are one, they're brought in here to be discipled, but God's the one that does the work and he's the one that expands his church then we looked at the priority of the word how important that is to us how we go through the 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 entire bible eventually we'll have been go through it from genesis all the way to through revelation we've gone through almost the whole new testament in addition to daniel and or excuse me uh, nehemiah and we're making our way through proverbs and eventually we'll we'll have gone through the whole uh, bible and how important that is then we looked at empowered by the Spirit, how important it is to be empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses to him. That Jesus knew that they had experienced, the disciples, he knew that they had experience, they knew that they had, had education, but they didn't have power. And so he told them to wait and so forth. So we're called to be empowered by the Spirit. That's something that's very important to us at Calvary Chapel. Also the gifts of the Spirit are for today how important it is that we use our gifts, that that's one of the pillars of disciple-making, is the, every part doing its share, according to Ephesians chapter 4, in addition to the leaders equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Both of those things have to be happening for disciples to be made, and we have a long ways to go in all those things, of course. So we talked about those things, and then, and then today we're going to look at grace upon grace. We're going to talk about how important it is to focus on and to have as a foundation God's grace in our lives and how it affects our growth as believers and the implications of all of that. If you're new to the Bible, you may not understand or may have not heard yet the definition of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's undeserved favor. It helps a little bit to understand what mercy is in, in, in coming to the conclusion of what grace is, because mercy is not, gets, not getting something that you deserve, that's just, that you should deserve, but someone's being merciful and not giving you kind of the bad thing that you deserve. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. It's undeserved by its very nature. So it's hard for our minds to wrap around how God deals with us. That's the essence of understanding what grace is as a Christian. How does God deal with me? How does he see me? How does he react to me and so forth? And, 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 and all those things are based on who he is. He's gracious. He's loving. Yes, there is a cause and effect relationship. There, are so, there is sowing and reaping in the Christian life. But what helps our growth is to understand that he's always going to deal with us on the basis of his grace. That he's always going to be gracious. And even allowing us to reap what we sow is an extension of his grace. And, and we have to understand that. He doesn't want us to reap bad things. But sometimes we, learn, we choose to learn a certain way and he allows that. He doesn't override our free wills. And he takes those things and he uses them for his purposes 
in our lives. He works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So for us to understand what grace is, it's undeserved favor. It's we get favor when we don't deserve it. Have you ever had somebody treat you really well when you stayed at their house for a few days? They're very hospitable and they take care of your needs. They anticipate needs. They um, are just pleasant and they, they're just a blessing. And what do you say when you, when you explain how your time was with, with that family or that, that group of people or that person? You say they were very gracious hosts. What are you saying? You're saying that they treated you better than what you deserved. I recently stayed with my aunt and uncle for a little while, for probably, well, in their minds, it was not a little while. Uh, (laughs) uh, And they were so gracious. They were so gracious to us. And they were very gracious hosts. But we always say that. We say they're very gracious and all of that. And they're giving us something that we don't deserve. So imagine going to a hospital and you're at this hospital and you're hurting you're sick and you go to this hospital and you go to the emergency room and the person that intakes you or processes you or however whatever that name is for that person they're criticizing you for being that way you're like man you know I came here to get better and, and all you're doing is criticizing me, and then you kind of make your you overcome that. And then you, you wait there for the 12 hours that you have to sit there, uh, and uh, you, you know, you're alive still, and you're thankful for that. And then you go in and finally go into the little place that you're going to wait another four hours. Um, and if you work in the emergency room, God bless you. Uh, I know that it's hard, and things are out of your control, and all those things. I, I get that. I'm just being a little bit more... Um, jovial related to that than I normally am but so you're there and all of a sudden the nurse comes in and then she criticizes you for for having this pain in your side or whatever it is and like well what have you been doing wrong you know and you know and you're it, you're and then the doctor finally comes in and he's criticizing you and you're like man I don't think I'm going to go to that hospital again I'm going to go to another hospital and that's kind of the picture for us right because people come in here among God's people, and they're hurting. Some of them, it takes weeks and years to get the nerve to come into a place like this. And they know they're hurting. They know they're messed up. And the, we ha- they have to experience people that are gracious and loving and understanding and, and understanding that they're going to have the same posture as God has towards them, that, that, that God is gracious and he's patient and he's willing to... to to put up with a lot of things as the process unfolds for us to to get what we need to get from him. So sometimes there's roadblocks that we as Christians in churches become roadblocks to people being around long enough to be able to get help from God, and that should never be the case. Am I just talking to myself here? I mean, mean, have you experienced this too, where you've gone into a church where you're not getting, you're not feeling loved, you're not feeling accepted, you're not feeling that... um, People love you unconditionally. That can't happen. That, that gets in the way of Christian growth, and it misrepresents the Lord's heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul wrote this, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Paul was constantly, according to that verse, was constantly thanking God for the gift of grace that had been given to the church of Corinth. 
And it's the same for us. God has given us the gift of grace. And it's an amazing gift just for us to understand. And and we're not going to ever get to the end of that because it's directly connected to who God is and he's infinite. So we're always going to be growing in that. But God has done that. He's given us his gift of grace by his Holy Spirit. God works in our lives by his Holy Spirit in a very gracious way. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 tells us that one of the way one of the titles of the spirit is the spirit of grace. He's the spirit of grace. Sometimes we think of the Holy Spirit supremely and only as the spirit of conviction and this or the spirit of exhortation or the spirit of you know all these things that are hard to hear, hard to accept. But so often we forget that God is the God of grace. He's the Holy the, the spirit of grace. And he wants us to know that. He wants us to press in. See, if you don't understand grace when you fail, and we all do, we're going to go further away from God and the things of God instead of drawing closer to him. So if you find yourself going away from God when you mess up, you don't understand grace the way God wants you to understand it. Because he wants us to fall towards him instead of falling away from him. Because he already knows what we're going to do. That's the thing that we forget. He knew from eternity past how we were going to fail. He knew at the cross how we were going to fail. He took all those sins. He paid for them already. He paid for sins we haven't even committed yet. He's not surprised by our failures. He doesn't like them. I'm not saying he endorses them or anything like that. But he knows about those things. He died for those things. He doesn't want our failures to get in the way of going forward with him. But we think, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. But see, a hypocrite is someone that's acting like they have it all together when they don't. It's not someone that recognizes they don't have it all together and they're around the things of the Lord. That's not a hypocrite. It's someone that pretends. And if we don't have a gracious environment, it creates actors. Pretty soon they're handing out awards here because of all the, uh, how the great acting that we're, we're doing. So that's why we have to have a gracious environment. Now, it doesn't just flow from the leaders, although it's, it's very, you know, of course, important for leaders to be gracious, but it's important for all of us to be gracious because it's not just the leaders that people come in contact with when they come around us. It's all of us, which means that we have to know how to handle hearing and experiencing people's shortcomings in a way that is appropriate. So often we focus on the little things and we lose sight of the big picture or the more important thing in someone's life and we're getting tripped up on these smaller things that are still important but they may not be the greatest thing that God is dealing with right now in that person's life. It may be high on our list but it may not be high on their on God's list in the sense of what the order in which he is taking these things and dealing with that person. We're all on different tracks. He's dealing with different things. At all, in all of our lives differently, we have to understand that. And so we can't portray that Christianity, it's important for leaders to do this especially, that basically you have to be perfect to be a mature Christian. That's horrible. I mean, we can inadvertently portray general perfection to people when in reality we know in our hearts that we sin and we fall short every day. I'm talking about leaders. But it's true for all of us. We all have to be responsible and be open and transparent in our failures because we all fail every single day. All of us sin every day. The, the standard is perfection. That's still the standard. 
And none of us meet that standard any given day. Because if we think that, then we don't understand how perfect the standard is. The word sin means to miss the mark. I love when people are doing archery. You know, I can't do archery. It's, it's a disaster when I try to do that. But whenever they miss the bullseye, I say, oh, quit sinning. You know, you're missing the bullseye. You're missing, the perfect, the, you're missing perfection. And, and I'm just giving them a hard time. But it's true related to our lives. We're missing the mark. That means that we're falling short. We're sinful. Because we, the things that we shouldn't do, we do. The things that we shouldn't think, we keep thinking on. And the things, the mo- our motivations in doing right things are wrong sometimes. And the good things that we should do, that he tells us to do, we don't do. That's sin. And so we have to realize the adequate standard of, of what we need to look at and understand is that it's perfection and we all fall short, myself included. I hope you don't think that I go around the whole week and I don't sin, that I don't fall short, that I don't have to repent. I hope you don't believe that because it's not true. So we all have to just talk freely and openly about this and honestly about it. We fall short. And we have to be honest because we, otherwise, again, we're just, we're just acting. So we have to know a Savior that's full of grace. And that's who the Holy Spirit has revealed in Scripture as Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Well, I don't know if God has enough grace for me. He's full of grace and truth. He's full of it. He's full of grace. And, and we, we need him to be, amen? I hope I'm not the only one that needs him to be full of grace every day. I need his grace. And so we often think, well, yes, God is gracious and I need his grace. But we don't understand how he uses our grace towards people in their lives and how significant that is. One of the main ways that people receive grace in the church is by other Christians extending grace to them. It's one of the main ways that we experience that. And we have to be very willing to do that. Because then we become that nurse in the emergency room. Or we become the doctor or the person intaking people that, that is not gracious and all of that. And the problem is, is that we need people's grace too. And that maybe can help us be a little bit more gracious with people. Usually the things that irritate us about people are the things that we have shortcomings with. As it's been said, our our sin looks really bad on other people. And it it offends us and we get irritated. The people that irritate us the most, usually what we're irritating them about, if we really look at it carefully and closely, many times we're, we're guilty of the same thing. And that's why it bugs us so much. Because we see our weaknesses and we have to be gracious with them. Jesus is full of grace. The sons of Korah, when they wrote Psalm 45-2, they talked about the Messiah having the Messiah that has lips, that has had grace poured over his lips. It says, verse 2 of chapter 45, Psalm 45-2, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Just this idea that the Messiah would have grace being flowing from his lips. And that's exactly what happened and what's revealed in Scripture. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, we're told this. So all bore witness to him 
and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Couldn't believe it. I'm not saying that they were thinking that Joseph's family was non-gracious and that's why they were marveling. There was other things too. But what came out of his mouth, they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And and look at our our verses here in verse 10. It says, but may the God of all grace who called us. When you call someone, that's, hey, you're using your words, right? Hey, remember when you're a little, you know, there's that whistle you know, uh, to come in right at the perfect time when you're in the middle of that game, you know, and you, it got interrupted now because you have to, one of the people has to go home. They had that calling, that, that, that cue, that, that, that word that they said, come, come home, Patrick, come home, you know, whatever. That's, that's something that was from my mother's lips. She called me home. And he says here in verse 10, who called us to his eternal glory, by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So he called us, and that was his gracious expression of his heart to us, that he would call us to his eternal glory. That's an expression of his grace, because we don't deserve that. We don't deserve it, but he does it anyway. And look, he says, after you've suffered a while, and they were experiencing persecution, and Peter was addressing it, he says, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's what grace does. It perfects us. It completes us. That's what perfect means. It establishes us because our works and our lack of our, the confidence that we have as a result of our works or the lack thereof before God inhibits us from growing as believers. And so God's grace establishes us and strengthens us because the enemy wants to condemn us and he wants to say how dare you approach God because of your sin and all these things and how dare you share your faith because of this and all these things and you just keep standing in God's grace and that strengthens you it fortifies you and it settles you there's a lot of unsettlement in this world today a lot of things and upheaval and he wants to give us peace in the midst of the storm he wants us to have perspective related to what's going on in this world. And we need God's grace. This world needs God's grace. But we're the instruments through whom he wants to communicate that to this world. And if we don't understand God's grace, it's going to be very difficult for us to communicate that to people that don't know Christ and to communicate that in the ch- people, to people in the church that need us to be gracious with them. See, the, the problem is people think that being gracious with people is, a, is actually enabling them to continue in their sin, and it's not. Because you're still speaking the truth and love to people. You're still, you're not going along with what they're doing. You're not um, validating it. You're not any of those things. You're saying those things are wrong, of course. But you're loving them anyway. And when God's called us to forgive people. And he says if basically if we can't forgive people, then he doesn't forgive us. And that's something that's serious. Very, very serious. I don't understand all the implications of all of that, the totality of it. But I just know that he has a very low tolerance for unforgiveness in his people, and he wants us to be forgiving. It's, it's unbelievable the extent to which his grace can affect our lives. And notice in verse 11 and 12, 
he goes on further. He says, to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Just makes Paul, or Peter rather, just start worshiping God, talking about the effect of God's grace and his calling and what he wants to do and calling us to his eternal glory and the effect of that grace and perfecting us and establishing us and strengthening us and settling us. He just breaks out into worship. That's what verse 11 is. It's worship. It's like, hold on, I'm writing something. I just need to give God glory right now. I just need to worship him for what he is doing in our lives. And then he says, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. Silvanus was his assistant and delivered this letter to them, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. The true grace of God in which you stand. We are called to stand in the grace of God. It's the picture of standing strong and bracing yourself against something, an onslaught or a tide or something that's coming forward against you. It's like, remember at the beach, you know, I remember when I was in La Jolla as a child, I almost drowned uh, being in the ocean there. But you, you know, the first time you're in the ocean and the, and the waves recede back and you feel like you're, you're going backwards, you know, like, whoa, you know, and then all of a sudden you fall and everything and someone has to save your life. That was the, what happened with me. But you stand against that current when it comes in. You take a stand and you stand. And that's what God's called us to related to the grace of God. We need to stand. We need to have more, listen to this, we need to have more confidence in God's ability to be gracious with me than how big my failure is. His grace is so much greater and bigger than my, our failures. Where sin abounds, grace hyperabounds, Paul would say in Romans. His grace is so much greater than all of our sin. We sing about that. We have, there's a song that says that. But it's true. His grace is greater than all of that. So what does it mean to stand in God's grace? Again, it means to lean on God's grace, to have more confidence in the, how, the scope of God's grace than the scope of our failures. The Christian life is a life fully dependent upon God in every day, in every situation, to be able to be dependent upon him. So how do we do that? How do we stand? And I just want to mention three different ways that, we're, that we stand in the grace of God. First of all, our hearts become established in it. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. And we're done with these verses in Peter, so you don't have to hold your place there. Hebrews chapter 13. Table of contents, no big deal. No condemnation. Hebrews chapter 13. I want to begin, I just want to read verse 9. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. 
So the, there was this false teaching that certain foods were in and of themselves sinful. And there was all this stuff. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling him, don't get sidetracked on all that. He said, but it is, it is, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. Because if they got involved in this false teaching about certain foods and all of that, then they would be leaving the whole issue of how God deals with us and they would be straying from those things that are related to God's grace in their lives and the freedom that we have in grace. But I love the fact that God has called us to have a heart that becomes established in God's grace because our hearts need it. Our hearts need that. I remember as a newer Christian, I was at a church, it was a, not a Calvary Chapel, and we had, we had a new pastor, and he was, he was teaching things that were making people insecure about their salvation that were works-oriented, which is obviously not right, not biblical. And it was the beginning of me leaving that church. And I went through a lot of spiritual abuse there, a lot of legalism, which is man-made rules that people try to foist upon believers. And I was stumbled by all of those Things And it made me go to the word deeper than ever and eventually led me to come to Calvary Chapel and start learning the Bible um, in context and all those things. Well, as a result of that, I, ha- I started exploring how deep grace is and how much it affects our lives. And, and I started really studying it. And I ended up teaching a college and career class and dealt with this thing, and a lot of people were upset because I was talking about grace. They were, they, when they hear grace, in legalistic environments, when you say the word grace, they hear license to sin. You're teaching them to have a license to sin. The problem is with all of that is what I have found is that when you understand God's grace and you understand how loving and how gracious he's been with us, your heart is established in the reality that you, you just can't believe that he would be that loving and that gracious with you and it melts your heart and you want to please him with the rest of your life by being obedient to him. The effect of God's grace is that you, you want to be holier to bless God because of how gracious and loving he's been. And you want to bless him by your life and your words and your motivations and you want everything to be a blessing to him in your life and you want to please him because the surgical scalpel of grace has been surgery on your heart. And you realize that he is amazing, and I can never, ever deserve his blessings, and, and there's nothing that I can do to get him to love me more and to, and to want to bless me more, and, and it's just who he is. And it makes you surrender even more, and then you're more wanting to live a life that's pleasing. So the effect of grace on a, on a, on a human life solidifies their commitment to God and holiness. That's why the helmet of salvation is so important because it protects our mind against the insecurity that comes from our failures. But when you recognize that he knew my failures, he knows my failures, he loves me unconditionally, even in the context of our failures, we continue to go back to him instead of running from him and causing ourselves more heartache and worse off, his heartache in the sense of what he goes through when we don't live up to the things that he wants us to live up to because we don't have an understanding of his grace. 
So our hearts need to be established in God's grace. Number two, we need to allow our lives to be strong in the grace that is in Christ. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just a little bit to the left. Now Paul, the apostle, is writing this from prison. He's about to lose his life. He's about to be beheaded, tradition tells us. He's writing his last letter to Timothy, his protege. And he's writing these things that are so important to him. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's hard for us to think about how that's possible. How do I do it? If I wanted to be an expert in being strong in the grace of God, how would I do that? It's you, how you do that is you focus on him and who he really is. That he is gracious. That he is, he gives us things we don't deserve. That's just how he is. And you focus on that. And you know that he saves us by, he saved us by his grace. And that he deals with us on the basis of grace. And you just, when you do that, it makes you not want to grieve him. It makes you not want to displease him. And, and that helps you to be strong and confident Because being strong in God's grace is moving forward in your faith despite your failures. In the face of your failures, you keep going forward. You keep being aggressive. You keep seeking him. You keep getting to know him more. Because the more you get to know him, even in the face of your failures, is the only way to know him because we're always going to be failing in this life. We're always going to be falling short. So when you're strong in his grace, you're confident that he's going to deal with you in a favorable way and he'll love you unconditionally he's not winking at sin in doing that because his spirit's convicting you 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 know that it's wrong you know that you shouldn't do it and you're repenting and you're turning to him and you're going forward sometimes people get so upset that they're failing over and over again and they're bothered by it and the fact that they're bothered by it shows that there's progress if they weren't bothered by it then that would be concerned being apathetic, being hardened towards sin, that's when I get start to get concerned. But if you're concerned about it and you're bothered by it, that's a great thing. So we need to keep going forward. Lastly, verse 3, or number 3, we are to grow in the grace of God. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. We did go back to 2 Peter. Or we were in 1 Peter, so you could have at least put a half a thumb in 2 Peter, I guess. But it's okay. Remember, table of contents, your friend. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to begin reading in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand... Beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness. Steadfastness. I'm steadfastness. (laughs) Steadfastness. Being led away with the air of the wicked. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter then again worships at the end of that. Just boom, just starts worshiping the Lord, just starts praising the Lord right away. But he tells us, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be gracious. That's in part how we grow in the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ, is understanding his grace towards us, but then also be gracious to others. Again, this is the place of spiritual growth around his people. This is where disciples are made. And we have to be gracious, no legalism. This has to be a place where people can make mistakes and still be accepted and loved. It has to be. That's one of the reasons why I believed our movement was birthed during the the hippie movement or the Jesus movement because that was the picture was such a challenge to the people there were people in Calvary Chapel not many of them but there were people in Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa that were older that weren't hippies that had to deal with hippies and they came in barefooted and maybe not all that you know shower friendly at the moment and they put their feet up on the pews I'm not saying we just kind of be however we are and just be flippant when we're in God's, you know, the place where we meet. But that they didn't they weren't trying to be disrespectful. It's just how they were. And and they put new carpet in and there was a sign someone put up above the door saying if you know shoes, no admittance. And Pastor Chuck ripped it down and said, "Well, then I guess we'll have to tear out the carpet." And he meant it. Because we're going to be gracious. We're not going to focus on the outward appearance as man does. We're going to focus on what God's doing inside of a person that outside will take care of itself. So when people mess up, we have to be gracious. We can't have conditional love. But they hurt me. But they did this against me. You need to forgive. You need to be loving. You need to be gracious. doesn't mean you have to trust them again. Trust is earned. But we need to be gracious towards them and be understanding that, that there's other things that that need to be applied to their life, that God's working on currently. We have to understand that. We have to forgive. And then also, we need to restore others. God's a restoring God. And it seems sometimes that believers of a very short number of times, are, they'll be gracious. Like, okay, you know what? Um, I'm going to be gracious a few times, that after that, I'm writing people off. And God doesn't do that. Aren't you glad he doesn't write you off? I think I'm so thankful he doesn't write me off. Peter thought he was doing great. Should I forgive a man 70 times? No, 70 times 7. Basically, it never ends. You need to be forgiving, 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 forgiving. That's how we should be. But sometimes we shoot our wounded. When they're at their worst place, when they're down, when they need their brothers and sisters the most, we kick them. And God just grieves over that because we're supposed to be representing him. Who has fallen? Who is struggling? We called them a few times. We checked on them. But now it's been months. And now we just don't reach out to them anymore. I'm guilty too. We have to be restoring. God's a restoring God. We have to be gracious with people. We have to go after them. We have to go after the one. Leave the 99 and go after the one. Yes, we're going to be telling them the same things hundreds of times maybe. But we can't give up on them. We don't want people giving up on us. We have to be gracious with people. That's what God wants. 
Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1 verses or chapter 6 1 through 3 brethren if a man is overtaken in any trespass any you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself lest you also be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing he deceives himself God wants us to restore people. Pastor Chuck was criticized so many times for taking guys that had fallen and helping restore them. He was criticized up and down by people because they would do that. He didn't care because he wanted to be there for people. And he knows sometimes the people that they need to get back going, getting, riding the horse again. They need to get going. I know there's a time where they need to process things and repent and make restitution and all those things is, are fine, but there comes a time where they need to get back and get going again and not fixate on their failure. And sometimes that's, you're, the Holy Spirit's going to reveal to you that that needs to happen sooner than what other Christians think should happen. And you need to be okay with that. We need to be gracious in that way. You know, in 1 Corinthians, there was a young man that was sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul said, put him out of the church. He needed to be disciplined. But then in 2 Corinthians, it appears that they were hesitant to bring this young man back in. And Paul wrote this, he says, do not be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up. With too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to affirm, reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And we quote that verse, don't we? We're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. But what was he talking about? He was talking about these people not being gracious and bringing, restoring a brother and bringing him back. And, and having the enemy use that in this young man's life to where he's overwhelmed with too much sorrow because he has nowhere to turn, because no one will accept him again after he made mistakes, after he repented. That's tragic. That's, a, that's one of the enemy's devices. We have to be the place that people know they can always go and get grace and always get encouragement, always get pointed to the Lord, no matter what they've done. That's what God calls us to. So our hearts need to be established in God's grace. We need to allow our lives to be strong in God's grace, and we need to grow in God's grace. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He loves to be gracious. Lastly, and I'll close with this, we're going to be learning about his grace for all eternity. That's the, that's the extent of, of how gracious God is. I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Paul writing by the Spirit, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us 
sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The ages to come, he's going to show us the riches of his grace. If I said we know just a sliver of the grace of God, it would not be a worthy comparison. Because we're talking about eternity. And we're going to be understanding the riches of his grace for all eternity. But what he has already shown us, he wants us to act on and be gracious with others. This has to be a gracious place for people. That is the place that all growth comes from, is a place that's gracious, a place that people love and people accept. And it doesn't mean that we uh, compromise. It doesn't mean that we you know, say that things are right when they're not right. I'm not saying any of that. It's being gracious and, and dealing with people appropriately, how God deals with us. If you want to know how to treat other people, just ask yourself, how does God treat me? And you'll have it all answered for you. And I'll have it all answered for me. Let's pray together.